So far, we have never reviewed a film that was preceded by a Walt Disney Pictures studio logo. One would expect them to maybe just sit this particular genre out. There are some war movies that strive to be comedic, some animated war movies that are anything but comedic, and then there's the movie 300 which is animated and comedic, but you almost never see a Disney comedy set against the backdrop of the Vietnam War. But here we are. Here we are introduced to lovable comedic actor Danny Glover, playing the role of outgoing liaison to a Montagnard village up by the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And it's America's most beloved funny man, Ray Liotta, as his by-the-book replacement. Right off the bat, the two men clash over their radically different ideas of what the mission in Vietnam is. Kids love this stuff. A minor slip-up lands the village in hot water with the North Vietnamese army, who extract retribution by murdering the village elephant. And hilarity ensues. Ha! No. Actually, the elephant plays an important role in the spiritual life of the village, and the Montagnards will sour on the U.S. if the fallen pachyderm isn't replaced in time for an upcoming festival. And there's our madcap premise. Our Felix and Oscar... Our Lewis and Martin, Glover and Leota put together a crack team featuring Dennis Leary, Doug E. Doug, and the guy from Parker Lewis Can't Lose to set out in search of an elephant. It's planes, trains, automobiles, helicopters, riverboats, and C-123s. Up the river and back again. Except this time, it's an actual elephant waiting up there and not just Marlon Brando in black pajamas. Just when you think... How many more hijinks can there be in this playful romp? They parachute the elephant on a shipping pallet out the back of a cargo plane. Dumbo drop. Tonally, this movie is super weird. And it troubles me to say, but it actually manages to have a lot of heart. It also offers a really interesting vantage point on the battle for the hearts and minds in Vietnam. I'm not saying it's one we should add to our collective reassessment of the war. It's just food for thought. The film was marketed to kids, I guess, which is freaking bizarre. Every single joke requires a fully formed adult sensibility to even register as a joke, and then a further de-evolution of that sensibility to think that it's funny, which it often isn't. There's the initial dead elephant, a traumatized little boy, a corrupt supply sergeant, lots of wartime cruelty, a second elephant who is also traumatized, and themes of betrayal and loss. Add to this the profound betrayal of casting Ray Liotta in a comedy. Still, there are some special effects that are totally mind-blowing, and the performances are pretty good. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there isn't a box to put this film in, even though I had a pine box ready for it, and it's pretty crazy that it even exists. Directed by Simon Winsid, and released to a flabbergasted American public in 1995, Only 90s kids will get this. We didn't start this podcast to shoot elephants, especially ones that fly. Today on Friendly Fire, Operation Dumbo Drop.
Welcome to Friendly Fire. We didn't start this war movie podcast to shoot elephants, but today we'll make an exception. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. This uh, is the most children-friendly war movie we've watched so far. Still, I think, would be really upsetting for a little kid to watch. This has got to be the only film on the list that opens with the Disney logo, right? Yeah, Walt Disney's Operation Dumbo Drop. But then, like, the first scene is about a family of, like, tribespeople in northern Vietnam. Be- or is it northern Vietnam? Yeah. The yeah, mountains being, of Vietnam. Oh, uh, mountains of Vietnam being, like, getting caught in the crossfire between VC and U.S. troops. And, uh, you know, there's, like, a an elliptical edit there, but... You can do the math on what happened to those people. Elliptical edits seem to be the theme in this film also. <laughs> yeah, that's true. This is a children's movie only if you really don't like the kids you're showing it to. I would strongly discourage people from showing this to small children. John, did you or would you show this to your young daughter? No. What, at what age do you think this film is appropriate? I mean, there would... As the only parent in the group. <laughs> the... The thing about this uh, as a kid's movie or even as an adult movie is that there is you would have to do so much explaining about about the backstory about what was going on like I mean it's it's a gibberish plot even for someone who's spent a lifetime wondering about what about Vietnam but (laughs) but like what are the what who now what i mean that it's a it's a fun little story about finding an elephant and dropping him into a village to help the local villagers except it's because we caused their old elephant to get shot as a reprisal for them finding a, a candy bar yeah for the vc the vc find a a nestle crunch bar wrapper among the effects of this village Ray Liotta is up to his old tricks, though, because he pistol whips the kid who leaves that (laughs) wrapper behind in a savage display of brutality. (laughs) And then then they, 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 uh, they throw him in the trunk and they bury him out in the woods. So he's heading up there to replace Danny Glover as like an attache to this village, which is near the current location of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I don't even believe that you are going to try and recap this thing. I'm not going to try. I Well, I was going to, I was just leading into, John, can you explain to me what the Ho Chi Minh Trail is? Because I feel like I have a vague understanding, but I bet you can really nail this bad boy. <laughs> well, you know, Vietnam is very long and very thin country. And um, Same. and in order to supply so in north vietnam it was it was its own country it had its own army the north vietnamese army and in the south of vietnam there was a rebel movement or a revolutionary movement and the north was supplying the rebels in the south the and then in the south they're called the vc they're not a they're not a regular army they're a they're a, a ragtag fugitive fleet they're the man in the black pajamas. Right. And in order to supply them, the U.S. had um, had made it very difficult to move material support north-south within the narrow confines of Vietnam itself. So uh, the North Vietnamese utilized an ancient series of 
trails and paths that, you know, networked all the jungles of Southeast Asia, but that went into Laos and Cambodia on the other side of, of um, you know, in the mountainous regions in, I guess what you would call Western Vietnam, Laos being in the north and Cambodia in the south. And so this, these trails, this network of trails, they could swing out, bring all these, I mean, tons and tons and tons of stuff, basically just being carried on jungle trails. Yeah. And then they'd swing back into South Vietnam. And the United States was not at war with either Laos or Cambodia. And so... Nom- nominally. Right. And, but but from, a, from an international standpoint like definitely not at war yeah but totally at war in the in that pretty early on in the war we started secretly bombing the ho chi minh trail and kind of everything around it because the trail it's a jungle trail it just if they if you blow it up it just kind of they just use the other one there right. there are dozens hundreds and we spent the whole war dropping Man, you know, like thousand bombs a day, Agent Orange, Napalm, everything we could think of, just fighting us, completely losing battle, because because yeah. it wasn't a road, it was a, you know, it was a donkey path. So that's the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and it and it's, you know, and it it precipitated later on the, you know, the, like Cambodia then went through ten years of of genocide. Um, you know, it's just we did a terrible, did a terrible, terrible business there. I think it's interesting that this film shows that in a tight ten-minute pre-credits sequence, like gives the children the story of the Ho Chi Minh Trail <laughs> in explicit detail. Yeah. Do we need to know that to appreciate the mission here? It's such a weird movie because it's like, I mean, like there's there's a lot of things about like the campaign for hearts and minds in Vietnam that are like interesting and kind of complicated adult ideas that I don't think would mean anything to small children. But for some reason, Disney made this movie and, and like cut the film to, to be theoretically appropriate for small children, like emotionally not appropriate for small children, but like, as far as imagery goes, maybe like you could make the case, I guess, for this being like if PG, if the PG rating that it got is entirely based on like technical considerations, like did they show any blood? No. Yeah. Like did anybody get shot on screen? No, it was all punching and kicking. Implied shooting. It's right. the only Vietnam movie you will ever see where no one dies. The only thing that yeah. dies is an elephant. But that's like more upsetting in some ways. Well, yeah, but Disney has a long history of killing the mom, right? And yeah. the only thing that dies in Bambi is Bambi's parents yeah. and a bunch of other forest creatures. I mean, but have you seen Dumbo lately? No. Dumbo is really a tough film. There's really bad bullying. There's like... I Miss My Mama is basically the theme of the entire film. There's yeah. an incredibly racist portrayal uh, of I mean, the crows in Dumbo are incredibly racist, but also they're the only interesting thing in the movie. It, Dumbo is really, really like 
a punch in the gut. But when I but I remember I showed it to my kid like, oh, this classic heartwarming Disney <laughs> film. It's about an elephant that flies with his ears. Yeah, right. And it's just like from the very beginning, you know, Dumbo's born and all the other elephants are like, he's gross. I mean, it was <laughs> it was really pretty. I awful. know what'll make you feel better as you pop in the VHS tape of Old Yeller. <laughs> There's something so much more uh, deeply felt about animal cruelty. It's it's because it's an innocent, you know, like the animal doesn't understand what's happening to it. But you know the 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 death of the elephant in this. It's it's just like you're saying, Ben. For an adult viewer, this is a trope of the Vietnam movie, right? That the that the North Vietnamese come into the village, they find that the village has have made contact with the Americans, and then they execute a, a reprisal of some kind. But in a lot of Vietnam, or in most, in every other Vietnam movie, that reprisal is like they chop off all the kids' arms or something, you know, or they, right. like, it's, this is, we're waiting for something really bad to happen, and something does, they kill the elephant. But from the standpoint of anybody who doesn't, who doesn't know what a Vietnam movie is doing, it's just like, they found a candy bar wrapper and they're killing the elephant? Like a kid, you would, even a 15-year-old kid would be like, what? That's, yeah, that's insane, and and it's you know, and it's somewhat like the North Vietnamese characters are they can't decide whether whether they're playing it for laughs or not throughout the whole movie. Yeah, they really oscillate between being like profoundly cruel and like having a just like a steely eyed motive of like the Americans can't have any wins, like we can't let rural Vietnamese people see the americans as uh, like in any positive way we can't let them keep their promises so the whole like antagonist operation of preventing the elephant from getting to the village because the first elephant is killed so the american army puts together a special forces op to deliver a new elephant and the nva are like working hard to prevent this from happening just so that the Americans don't get a W, you know, yeah. they don't get a point in the W column. When when Dougie Doug showed up in the movie <laughs> and was doing um, basically an impression of the guy from Police Academy, um, getting real, you know, he's like, I've only got five days. I'm not going to go on your stupid mission, you know, like I'm short timer. And then... <laughs> And then you're thinking, oh, he's going to be the nervous one throughout the movie. He's like the, he's the Rickles, right? He's the comedic relief here. Right. Every eight-year-old can really identify with this, right? Yeah, right. The short timer, man, oh, of course. Like, that, supposed to cycle back to the world next week. Yeah, there's a short timer at my school. He doesn't <laughs> want to go out on the playground in case he gets a, a boo-boo. But then you realize, like, this movie's got 14 different Rickleses. Yeah. Everybody's mugging for the camera. It's Rickles all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> John, your, uh, your call out of uh, the police academy DNA in this film is fairly apt because the writer wrote three of those sequels. Really? Yeah. It, uh, yeah, I just, I felt, I felt police academy vibrating uh, <laughs> like in the firmament. I mean, you, Ray Liotta really is the Steve Gutenberg of this film. I, I I always wonder about Ray Liotta because he because 
Goodfellas looms so large in all of our movie awareness. Yeah. And I and I sometimes I'm like prompted to wonder did Ray Liotta ever do anything else like that was a pretty chewy role and then you remember oh yeah he was in a lot of movies at this I mean Operation Dumbo Drop doesn't even make it onto the front page of his (laughs) IMDB yeah I'm so used to him being a coke-fueled chaos agent in whatever film that he's in that I was just it's one of the things that kept me so wrapped in my attention for the film is like, when is he going to go off? <laughs> when is he going to jeopardize the mission? But he, yeah. When is, is almost... he going to like beat Danny Glover to death? But, but he's the guy that keeps the mission on track the entire time. Really plays against type. Well, and they set it up like he's going to be the, the square by the book dude. And Danny Glover is going to be the, the guy who's, you know, he's the Kurtz. He's been up the river now. Right. He's, he's gone. He's gone native. Yeah. And and that's the that's the dynamic right away. Yeah, this the beginning that beginning scene where they like you know they're making Ray Liotta drink the uh, local rice wine, and Danny Glover is in like traditional Vietnamese garb is like is like what if we start the movie the way Apocalypse Now ends and yeah. then see how it goes from there? I love it. <laughs> Any more joking? I'll call you know who. But, but then the dynamic between those guys just like switches over into a kind of uh it's not really like by the book dude versus do it the spirit way right as much as it is just like two guys kind of jostling for you know just like two it's just like it's just a pissing contest yeah, they're both loose cannons, but they also both sometimes play it by the book. But they both get results. <laughs> yeah, and I mean we're ta- we're talking about Danny Glover coming. He's like pretty big star, right? Coming coming off of the Lethal Weapon movies, he's like a box office. He's box office gold. And so is uh, so is the director of the film. We got Simon Winter from Free Willy. Like that was a smash hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is almost a license to print money here. The script feels like they banged it out in like an afternoon, printed it, and went into the field and started shooting. Like there are so many like one-liners that the math of them is just is just fucked up and wrong. Like so like so many of the like quippy little jokes were like they feel like they're there so that Patton Oswalt can come and rewrite them <laughs> and they can have a good script. I wonder how much of that is a function of us not having seen a lot of family-friendly comedies, though. Because it seems like a thing that you'd see Charles Grodin do in Beethoven or something. <laughs> like That's sort of a brand of family-friendliness that I know personally I'm not too used to. Yeah. <laughs> I caught myself about 40 minutes in going, oh, wait, this is supposed to be funny. And then being more confused, wondering even more, because I was I was kind of trying to watch it from the middle. I was trying to watch it as a Vietnam movie because it kind of gets you, sucks you in as a Vietnam movie. Like, oh, Dennis Leary is the is the corrupt supply sergeant. Like there's literally one of those (laughs) in every Vietnam movie in in a lot of movies. But Vietnam, especially, I guess he's the supply lieutenant. Um. You know, the guy that's like, I'll give you 400 cigars for two dancing girls and a and a jug of hooch. <laughs> that was another scene that they lifted off of Apocalypse Now. Yeah. There are a lot of mirror images in yeah. both of these films. Well, shit, they go up the river out. at one point. Yeah. Yeah. 
But, you know, there's another theme running through this movie, which is, so the people in the village are not Vietnamese. They're Montagnards, which are an ethnically and culturally separate group of people that live in the mountains of Vietnam that generally did not share much, like, love with the Vietnamese for, for ancient reasons and allied themselves with the French and then the Americans against the Vietnamese more often than not. It put them in a very problematic position throughout the war, but the Montagnards acted as kind of like a like scouts and special forces for the US because they had, you know, tribal problems with the Vietnamese, historic ones. And there was a and there was a lot of betrayal of the Montagnards at the end of the war and great uh, like numbers of that community ended up emigrating to the United States because there were people that in the US military that were like, "Hey, these guys really did a number for us. We can't leave them behind." I mean, it was a complicated, complicated story. And so that is at the core of this, right? That that village up there, they were not just a South Vietnamese village that kept changing alliances depending on who was coming through. Like that yeah. that was a like a, a readout where those that community was a separate entity, not just from the NVA, but from the from but culturally from the Vietnamese. So halfway through the movie I'm also in that story like, wow, the, there aren't that many movies about the Montagnards and how they play into the whole conflict. Do they speak the same language as ethnic Vietnamese? No, they have their own they speak like some kind of like Austroasiatic language. Wow. Um, and they have their own food and it's a whole st- and there are there are multiple different I mean multi yards is like a is like a collective Umbrella term. term. Yeah, yeah. For people that like a whole slew of tribes. One thing that was like pretty remarkable about this movie to me was how much linguistic skills the American soldiers were shown to have like there was no like speaking in code by one guy speaking Vietnamese with the other guy because they all spoke Vietnamese and it's I guess implied that Danny Glover speaks the language of the village right yeah he said he speaks like five languages Cambodian and and uh, and the local language and I guess those guys are supposed to be green berets yeah so maybe (laughs) <laughs> but you don't see that very often either. You know, you, usually in a right. Vietnam movie, there's just somebody going, right, yeah, reading something off a card or speaking through a, a translator, but these guys didn't need it. I wonder if that's true. I mean, it's like, it's based on a real thing that happened, right? Well, yeah, but I tried to figure out, like, they didn't actually parachute elephants into, I mean, I couldn't I couldn't find enough of the actual backstory. It just every, everywhere led to that blind alley of, like, based on a true story, Right. Yeah. You're like, well, which one? Like, I read an interview with one of the guys who was a part of this operation, and he basically said that uh, the most accurate part was the feeling that the <laughs> Green Berets had and the motivation to get the job done. <laughs> so, I thought that was fairly telling. Yeah. <laughs> there might not have been an elephant as, as a part of this operation at all. But the feeling definitely... They yeah. dropped a uh, a television set and a VHS player with a copy of Dumbo in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm-hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah. It's kind of a road movie also because they, you know, they realize that this elephant having bought the farm is gonna is gonna wreck their ability to uh, use this use this village as a surveillance post for the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So to like kind of buy back into the good graces of the villagers, they commit to bringing an elephant, but they have to bring it uh, over a tremendous amount of terrain. And so like, and it's like airplanes, boats trucks like this this elephant is uh transported in every conveyance conceivable it's it's like it gets kind of episodic you know it's that that thing in a road movie where it almost like doesn't matter like what it's like this thing happens then this thing happens then this thing happens it's the whole middle of the film it felt in tone and in uh the way the chapters were set up a lot like a film i never imagined i would compare this to which is three kings yeah. Like, what would oh. Three Kings be if their story took death off the table completely and lowered the stakes almost to the floor? <laughs> uh, it's that sort of caper-style adventure film in a in an area of the world where you would not assume a story to exist like this. And it also has that like a similar journey for Leota's character of like right. I didn't come here expecting to be super bought in on the like emotional lives of the people in this country i just you know i just want to like do my time and win the war and get out i mean i am shocked the another real similarity to three kings for me at least was that at a certain point in the middle i was trying really hard to keep a geographical map of what was happening Mm. Uh, some 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 like geographical uh, continuity like okay so First, you're in a helicopter, then you're on a hovercraft, then you where now? Then you went back to the to the place, and then you and the, but then you had to go to the and all of a sudden you're in a town. Yeah, for a story to be so connected to a path, they almost completely disregard the details of that path. Yeah, it's just vaguely you're gonna go south where the the elephants have fled to. Yeah, and get one. 
Yeah. They don't even give us that classy red dot and line treatment that you get in an Indiana Jones film. <laughs> <laughs> give me some of that. If they had done that, if they'd done the like, and now we're, yeah, we're right. Now we're flying to here. Just one kind of Disney style map. I would have been a lot happier. And that's also true of Three Kings. Doesn't that help raise the stakes when you know where you are? Yes. I, I think so. And it seems very like a simple addition. It to seems have like, it. yeah, and, and they spend time on it. Like they say like, okay, then we get them here and we're going to have to get an airplane from there to the CIA airstrip near the village. You know, that there's a lot of logistics talk, but they never actually do anything to illustrate it. Yeah, and in a in a normal Vietnam movie, you wouldn't be able really to get away with that kind of cartoony Indiana Jones treatment, but in Operation Dumbo Drop? I feel like you could. You sure could. I feel could. like it's, it's tone appropriate in yeah. this film. Um, do you guys want to hear a, uh, a goof? Yeah. In the ending credits, the Fairchild C-123 provider used in the elephant drop is misidentified as a Lockheed C-130 Hercules, which, uh... The goof I thought I'd read aloud because I just want to make it known that I'm not the only person that confuses one kind of airplane for another. D- does that happen? I, I I heard it. I heard it referred to as a like. At what point did they call it a uh, C-130? Because I didn't hear that. It's, it's in the end credits. What? Oh, yeah. that's what? crazy. No, it's, it's especially crazy because the pilots are referred to as C-123 pilots in the credits. So they like. We're editing the text document of the credits, and they, like, made the mistake within that. A C-130 has four engines. <laughs> That's two more engines than the 123. I, I thought it was really kind of cool and brave. Now, this is going to get really, really, really into the into the nerd weeds here. Adam and I might have to bre- break off and do a separate podcast. But I thought it was really cool that they used 123s throughout this whole film. Yeah. Because... C-130s would be the, you know, those were the major airplanes that did this kind of work in Vietnam. There would have been a lot more C-120, or I'm sorry, a lot more C-130s than 123s. And the 130 is the one that you see, like, dropping pallets of grain out the back to, to like, mitigate a famine in some country, right? Yeah. If you want to bomb a village with a payload full of elephants, the, <laughs> the 123 is really your bird. Well, it sure was, and and I was uh, I was like I was really into seeing that airplane over and over again. Yeah, it's got that weird seat in the inside for the like person who manages the the hold. It's a really fun like Ford Ranger style aircraft that you can just short land and take off <laughs> off of anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're definitely rolling over bushes that I feel like like your average commercial jet would be yeah. destroyed by. Yeah. <laughs> Really fun. It didn't play that large of a role in Vietnam, but here it was. It was like the star of this movie, and, I mean, obviously they got one. These were the planes that, that sprayed Agent Orange, is basically like what they're famous for in Vietnam. Wow. Um, and they are short takeoff and landing, like Adam says. But when you when you... When you look at Agent Orange spraying, it was... They put um, basically crop duster tubes out onto the, out the length of the wings and then they just flew these planes in in uh, back and forth patterns over the jungle wow speaking of crop dusting uh were you expecting a little more poop play in a disney film that 
that featured a large animal in it. I mean, there was a, there was one scene. I expected them to drop some poop out of the back of this aircraft <laughs> on like a bombing run. <laughs> the like dickhole colonel that made them do the operation gets it in his jeep or yeah, something. Yeah, like the I hate manure scene from Back to the Future. I was yeah. expecting to get that, but instead we got Corin Nimick uh, <laughs> jumping into the back of a pickup truck who is not shown to have pink eye for the second half of the film like he really should. <laughs> I think it's uh, Dennis Leary and Corin Nemec both get the... Because Dennis Leary's like yeah. complaining about his uniform later. Do you think it was extremely difficult for Ray Liotta and Dennis Leary to not say motherfucker <laughs> like at the end of every line of dialogue? I'm sure it got edited out. I'm sure they did. <laughs> I want to see the R-rated version of this film. Yeah. It's kind of an amazing story and kind of an amazing... Like, it's amazing that this movie exists in the way that it exists. Right. I can see telling this story and just having... Like, this is a this is like a semi-true story that is set in a war zone, so there's going to be, like, war and fucked up shit. But not the Disney version. Yeah, like, what's the David O. Russell version of this film? Like, we're seeing that elephant decapitated in the first scene, right? You're right. Like, every one of the performances, for the most part, the acting performances, was pretty charming. Like, I ended up, when Dennis Leary appeared on the screen, I was like, oh, boy, this movie was bad. But here we go into the potty. But, but by the end of the movie, like he was, he, I love I, every time he was on the screen, I loved him. I came around to Ray Liotta. The kid was fun, was like a nice little kid. Like the kid has like, like the performance on that kid is unbelievable. Like he got, he dug so deep. There's so much pathos when he is talking about like losing his family and feeling alone and like he can't trust anybody. Like it's, it's. A chilling performance. It's a miracle because they start him out like Cobal. What mean expendable? It, he really seems like a cartoonish character until you see him go through a full spectrum of emotion later. And I couldn't figure out in watching it because it's another one of these films where he's basically saying like, you made it, Rambo. Like, right. He's, he's giving this like fully nuanced emotional breakdown performance while at the same time speaking in Hollywood Vietnam English written by white people yeah but on his face you're really you're really there with him and you know I guess only only a kid could do it right he really gives a hamburger hamburger bang bang performance of a lifetime yeah John because he's he's totally like America number one he's cartoonish about it so early that I didn't think there would be any redemption for him yeah. as a character, but he totally pulls it out of the weeds. This guy, uh, it's his only acting credit. Uh, Din Ten Lee, his only Hollywood performance. I wonder where he is now. Yeah. It seems like the way Disney grooms child actors that like he could have had a career ahead of him. Seriously. He's a really good-looking, great-acting kid. Yeah. Well, to this movie's credit, also... I mean, we we have a largely Vietnamese cast playing at least people in Vietnam. I don't know how many of them are Montagnard. Um, the 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 main um, the main sore thumb is the amazing and wonderful, universally beloved 
James Hong. Right. Um, who... Of Chinese restaurant in Seinfeld fame. Yeah, uh, although, well, I mean, he was in big trouble in Little China. Now, his his main credit is Chinese restaurant in Seinfeld. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> also known for eye designer in Blade Runner. Eye designer in Blade Runner. But, but I mean, have you seen Big Trouble in Little China? Highly recommended. Yes, I've seen Big Trouble in Little China, John. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in 1983. All right, all right, I suppose. I was like the guy in Clockwork Orange my entire childhood watching Big Trouble in Little China. I guess that's right. I guess that would have... Is that a kid's movie? <laughs> I don't know. It was definitely a movie that was playing for played for me by my naughty friends who said, don't tell your parents I showed you this, you right, know? right. I know you hate it when I do this, but uh, is this a kids movie is a great idea for another podcast <laughs> that we all do together where we decide movie? what your daughter can watch, John. <laughs> I like that plan. <laughs> <laughs> These people have been the difference between life and death for me. Lynn, the, the little boy, like he's coming as a package deal with Botet the elephant. Is he a Montagnard or is he, is he supposed to be... He is, yeah. Okay. I, mean, I, I think that's the 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 concept is that he's a fish out of water in South Vietnam because he's not he's like also racially distinct, right, and culturally distinct from those people. So he's just like his only friend is the elephant, and he's been living in exile, and he wants to be taken back to the mountains. Although when and there is that reunion scene where he after the Dumbo drop, he climbs down off of the elephant and runs off with the other kids and plays. But he's the largest kid in that group. And I really, really wanted, and again, I, Disney could get away with all this other stuff. And it, it feels like Adam's saying, like it was just rushed into production. They should have handed this script to Patton Oswald one time. Yeah. But when he climbs down off of that elephant, if he had just looked over and there had been a very, very pretty 12-year-old girl. <laughs> and then both of them, like, their eyes sparkled. And he'd say, like, will you, will you watch the elephant while I go well, play? No, here's, here's what it is. He, he's standing there and kind of hesitates, and the elephant trunk pushes his back a little bit and says, oh, go talk to her. Come on! <laughs> Why isn't that in there? Because the elephant is his mom. Right? Yeah. The, the elephant saved him from the attack that we see at the beginning is 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 like six years earlier. It's young Lynn and Botet, and Botet saves Lynn from the, uh, from the fray. That really brings up an interesting point for me, which is, were you surprised at how little they anthropomorphize the elephant? Like, it does not really have a character or a set of emotions or a way that it acts it is it is like they're transporting a tank yeah it doesn't really act out or it, act there's in, a couple of scenes where the elephant gets out of control and like causes mayhem in a town or whatever but it's not like but it's not it's attitudinal not like, right it's not that's botet being botet right <laughs> and i i think i would have i was expecting that to happen here in a disney movie but any movie that features an animal as a main character almost exclusively pivots in that direction. Yeah. I mean, all they do is zoom in on its weepy eyes. Yeah. And obviously the elephant understands all spoken language because people talk to it 
and explain like what's going to happen. Like not only does it understand human language, but it understands foreshadowing. <laughs> it understand you know, it has a complicated relationship with its past. Uh, but it never. You're right. Oh, it uh, uh, they have minds never, like a steel trap. You know. By the way, Din uh, Tian Li is on Facebook. No shit. What? Yeah, I, I want to be his friend. Yeah, he's he's like. Does he denounce the film like as <laughs> as his main thing? <laughs> no, uh, he appears to live in Vietnam, Whoa. and just be. I mean, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but. Yeah, he's a very handsome, grown-up person. I believe it. Um, he's got great bone structure. Yeah. Well, anyway, you know, go friend him. Tell him he's telling me he did a great job. I I mean, we're recording this way ahead of time. I can only imagine that the Facebook Corporation will have been destroyed by this point. Oh yeah, it doesn't exist anymore. Parasitic social network. It's crazy that he never acted again. <laughs> yeah. Totally crazy. Can't believe that. He resisted the Disney machine. Yeah. You have to believe that the Disney machine wanted to make him a star. Is he too specific for the Disney machine? Like, if he is, uh, I mean, if he actually is Vietnamese, like, he probably, they, they weren't noted for their, like, racial diversity at this point, right? No, this would have been 10, ten years before they even considered having a, having a rainbow coalition. Yeah. But, but... You know, this this movie kicked down the door of the Vietnamese or the Vietnam War kids movie. Why didn't they? You know, there's so many you could make. It's like there's so many more types of animals you could drop on a Vietnamese village. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Or tell the tell the story of the kids that got their arms chopped off from the perspective of the kids. God. (laughs) <laughs> this is the darkest shit you've ever said, John. I wanted to talk about the helicopter and airplane footage in this film because it really, like, swings wildly from insanely impressive to terrible, bad special effects. Like, there's there's stuff with the choppers and the airplanes where they're, like, doing low... You know, like stuff that is just as impressive as action helicopter stuff that they got for Rambo Two, where the chopper is is uh, you know swooping in and out of trees, like you know flying down river and barely missing the trees on either side. The stuff where they have to fly the the C one twenty three below radar ceiling so that they don't get shot down is super impressive but then like the reason that they're like that they have to do that is they show missiles flying out of the jungle at the plane and they're like the fakest most digital missiles of all time it's like they took torpedoes from a submarine movie and then like recomped them into the sky (laughs) they look really bad that was really terrible thank you for saying so and like when ray liotta is in the helicopter in the first scene He's in a re- he's really in a helicopter and it's exciting and great and then the next time he's in a helicopter it's rear projection and the you know the background is like a different color temperature from the foreground and it looks super fake and weird and it's crazy that they had both things in one movie like they didn't just make one choice about how we're going to shoot helicopter s- scenes did you fully expect for Ray Liotta to 
like the late motif of Leota vomit to be a thing that <laughs> continued throughout the film because they begin with him vomiting after a helicopter flight. And then yeah. a large part of the mission involves going on aircraft again. I thought that was going to be his uh, Achilles heel. Yeah. Like you don't introduce that a character is, uh, is like agoraphobic in act one for it not to be a thing that they have to deal with later. Yeah, it feels like a rule that they disobeyed yeah. film-wise. That scene is very much Vietnam pick, very not very much um, kids movie because Ray Liotta shows up and he's like, I'm, you know, I'm the guy, high and tight, let's get going. And the, and the <laughs> aircraft crew is like, oh, get a load of this guy. We're going to take him on a Nantucket sleigh ride. <laughs> and, and no kid is going to get what's going on. You know, there. This is there. This is like a stoned helicopter crew. It's like <laughs> let's let's see if we can make this guy barf. Yeah, and it's it's pretty subtly played. And you're like, this is a great Vietnam movie. Like, I like this helicopter crew. Let's stick with them for a while. <laughs> yeah, and like, what about the 123 crew that are like pissed that they have to take this elephant and insist that they sedate the elephant and then attempt to just like after they've uh, like. We know that the top secret letter is fake, but they don't. And they decide unilaterally, like, we're dumping the elephant out the back of the plane. Wouldn't there be hell to pay for, for guys like that? I mean, I, yeah, if, if, the, if the pilot felt like the, other op- the only other option was that the elephant was going to crash the plane, I think he, he would have at least, least been able to look his commander in the eye. Yeah. It just, it seems like if there's a top secret letter... This mission must be of a of a certain priority, and you do whatever it, you need to do to see it through. But like one crazy thing about this movie is that the Americans are very much treated as like complicated, and there are internal conflicts within the within the military. Like some people really are not there for the right reasons and not acting ethically within what they're there to do and it's another post apocalypse now vibe right but that's such a weird thing to put in a children's movie like you never see the army in children's movies depicted as complex and not entirely honorable necessarily a hundred percent of the time and uh you never depict soldiers as having their own personal motivations for things so let's establish that despite the like wonderful world of disney opening (laughs) <laughs> which which suggests that at some point there are going to be dwarves. <laughs> um, let's establish that this is not a kids movie. Yeah. Even though, isn't there actually a, a like a moment where Ray Liotta's face like cartoon morphs into something? There's a cartoon morph of uh, of the elephant uh, oh. morphing into one of the like stone temple elephants. Yeah, completely unexplicable cartoon morph. Yeah, does we, that imply that the elephant that is again. the god? The yeah. elephant god oh, that's I think described that's a, earlier. That's definitely the implication. Yeah, yeah, elephant god, right? But so this is not a kids movie. Who? It, what is the audience for this <laughs> movie? Who, when they got done, who did they think was going to go see it and be totally in it? I don't know. Yeah, I mean. 13 year olds maybe 
The movie made $24 million at the box office. It's for whoever didn't want to see Waterworld, <laughs> which <laughs> is the film it opened against. Wow. But Waterworld also like super cartoony, big, big question about who that movie was for. Right? I mean, at least yeah. for me, like when Waterworld came out, I remember going like, who would go to that? And it was a huge, I guess, a huge movie, although my sense was that it lost money because it cost $100 million to film. I mean, think about that. Dumbo Drop and Waterworld opening at the same time in 1995. It's just one more nail in the coffin of 1995. Yeah. A year that already had a lot to answer for. <laughs> and yet 1995 continues to walk the street unpunished. I guess. I mean, what was the big band that year? Lit? Like, who the, was that? Was that like... Hey, now, I'm a rock star. I mean, what, yeah. what the hell was happening in 95? It was all garbage across the board. It's a beautiful oblivion, well, 1995. Yeah. 1994, like, burned so much of its creative and cultural energy that uh, 1995 just was inevitably going to be a piece of shit. <laughs> it, it, had, it, it had a big brother that it couldn't live up to. So, yeah, yeah the big bands then... Uh, I guess Coolio's Gangsters, Par Gangsta's Paradise came out that year. Oh, that's the year of Oasis's Wonderwall. Oh, man. Uh, you Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette. And then just a bunch of, you know, a bunch of music. I mean, that was like... Few people know that Oasis wrote Wonderwall about its relationship with Dave Coulier. <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> Did you like anything about this movie? Like, we're, uh, we're going pretty hard on it. Yeah. I don't know if we are. Like, I think we're just amazed that it exists. Like, Yeah, it is an amazing document of its, of its time. Like, I don't think, like, in the terms of, like... Like on movie terms, it's a good movie, but it is amazing to watch. And there are amazing things about it, like amazing performances. Some of the special effects are unbelievable. Like the actual, the titular Dumbo drop scene, a thousand percent delivers on like what the movie promises, even though it is like two great special effects intercut with 17 terrible special effects right. it's still fucking amazing and super compelling and super fun to watch like 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 ray liotta jumping out the back of that plane because the the parachute isn't going to deploy on yeah. on the elephant and you're like picturing like what happens if this elephant just hits the ground at terminal velocity like whoa <laughs> Danny Glover jumping out with the kid unstrapped in. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh my I, God. I was on the edge of my seat. Holy crap. That scene. Like if you, if like, if you're listening to this and you haven't watched this film, you don't necessarily need to watch the film, but watch that scene. It's fucking amazing. Yeah. I mean, the, when, when that parachute opens and he's holding that kid in his arms and you get, you go through that whole scene of like, because those parachutes took a long time to fully deploy. Right. And you're like, when that yanks him up, he's going to have to be holding onto that kid so hard. Right. Because that kid is still going like like 80 miles an hour and he's going to get cranked back. And I was, you know, as a father, just like, no, don't lose the kid. Because <laughs> you have all these nightmares when you're a dad of like, you're holding on to your kid, but there's, you know, 
but you're drowning or something and how do you keep how do you make it so your kid survives right. how do you keep your kid away from the dingoes <laughs> and uh and that's just one of those things like how tight would you have to hold on so awful but but it's another example of the fact that we never got inside the head of the the elephant enough that when the elephant is plummeting through the sky tied into a crate it's it feels like they're dropping a tractor it doesn't you're not thinking because you should have in that time been also putting yourself into the mind of the elephant going become emotionally invested in the elephant yeah like what the fuck is happening to me i am flying through the sky yeah but Uh, this film never tells you how the elephant is feeling at any point no no weird weird that it didn't you think it's a it must be a model of an elephant with a trunk and tail that are floppy so that they can stream in the air yeah yeah they're great though they built several of them and two of the shoots never opened so they full-on destroyed two of their uh, of their fiberglass elephants amazing in shooting that sequence yeah i watched it really carefully to uh, looking for that like uh corn filled fake dude jumping off a building that you see in <laughs> yeah. in every movie or in you know certainly like in um in the yes video for only a, a owner of a lonely heart where the guy's like I'm <laughs> jumping off the building and you're like you're a sack of corn and the arms always give that away right yeah in the way that you're expecting the trunk to flop up like yeah. uh like it's filled with newspapers yeah. i thought it looked good throughout the drop it did look good yeah this movie almost felt like not worth watching for this show and then that scene happened and i was like man movie redeemed you're a line producer and you're looking at the budget though and you're like we need an extra fiberglass elephant or we could buy this credence song (laughs) i think you gotta buy the credence song it felt weird to never hear fogarty vocals in a vietnam film (laughs) well and they did they made that weird choice and i felt like that from the very beginning of the movie that uh, there's a certain amount of 90s um revisionism of vietnam i think we've talked about already but they decided that this movie was going to be soundtracked exclusively in soul music 60s Mm. soul Yeah. yeah and there's a version of every vietnam movie where you know where you hear aretha franklin too but they did there was no fogarty there was no country there was it was all soul music and that was that was definitely a choice and it felt like a little bit of a 90s we're going to correct the prejudice of older uh vietnam movies by making sure that this one is a soul mo- soul movie yeah did you feel like uh like in its resolution to the story I feel like what the film was trying to do was different than what it actually did. Like, I felt like the resolution was made to make you feel like the United States uh, did not and cannot win in Vietnam, but we can make it right with this one village here and in some way, like, do a little bit of good. Was that effective to you guys as one of the messages? Yeah, I think that the movie doesn't let the United States off the hook. And that's one of the other, one of the many weird things about it. Like in the era that the film was made and about the war that it was about, like most of, most of Hollywood is at this point trying to 
make movies that make it seem like Vietnam was a good war that we didn't do for the wrong reasons. And well, the result might not be what we wanted. Everybody that was there was doing it for the right reasons and, you know, or what, whatever, whatever, like, like there were bad people in the government, but you know, the soldiers were great. Like the soldiers are complicated in this movie. The, I mean, we get more about the motivations of the soldiers on the other side in this movie than we have in many of the films we've watched, you know? The idea that they can't, we can't let them win the hearts and minds in this village because, you know, there, there's a slippery slope there and they'll start winning the hearts and minds in other villages. And the NVA officer that decides against using artillery to take out the, the, the elephant as it's falling out of the plane because he didn't get into this war to kill elephants. Well, and you see that pretty early in the movie that the, that the under officer in the, in the NVA is given a conscience really, on, really early on. Right. Cause he kills the elephant to avoid killing a kid. Yeah. And the, and the, um, and the dynamic between him and his cruel-hearted by the book officer you don't often see in a in a Vietnam movie where the enemy also has not only is there one of them with a conscience but there's also a dynamic right there's an internal conflict within the enemy as yeah. well yeah that was that was a novel for sure it's novel like in like can you think of any of the movies that we've watched so far for this podcast where that's happened? No. Well, not only where it's happened, but where he subordinates. He's he's doing his job throughout. Yeah. Which often is to be just the Herbie, Herbie the love bug foil who's standing on the side of the road and gets hit with some with a cream pie. Right. But he also is like he he ends up he ends up saying like don't kill the elephant. He's got the line of the film. I didn't join the army to kill elephants. Yeah. Especially ones that fly. And you're like, what? You're the, you're the heart and soul of this movie. (laughs) Bad guy. Not so bad after all. Well, he did still kill a kid. I don't (laughs) know. I, I, I have a pedantic moment. Sure. This is so pedantic. I can't even believe I'm going to do it. But the parachutes that they use in the parachute drop were not Vietnam era parachutes. Those parachutes were invented years later in the late 80s. You could see that they were vented and were controllable. And in Vietnam, parachutes were still just like parabolas. Just a circle with yeah. strings attached. And so if you flew, if you jumped out of the back of an airplane, I mean, you had a tiny bit of control, but for the most part, you were just going down wherever your parachute was going to land you Hmm. and infantry didn't get like controllable parachutes until until the late 80s so anyway when those parachutes came out of their bags because i always watch for that when you're doing a, a a movie from the past like oh parachutes are usually a good way to decide whether they had historic whether they really pursued historic accuracy and uh and these you know they're the right color they're army parachutes but they are not they're much later (laughs) in the technology i hope that by the time this episode comes out you will have added that quibble to uh imdb (laughs) that's some i mean that's herp derp in a deep deep way (laughs) 
the thing that really raised the tension for me watching the film was seeing Ray Liotta's finger on the trigger of his weapon most oh. of the time. Oh, he didn't have trigger discipline. Not at all. Like, I was expecting him to Pulp Fiction someone in the back of the truck <laughs> on accident, you know? Why the fuck did you do that? Well, I didn't mean to do it was an accident. This definitely didn't feel like a movie where they, like, sent the, the main cast characters to boot camp and, yeah. like, made them live in the jungle for six months. Not only that, I read that uh, they were so unhappy on the set of this film that Glover, Leota, and Leary... Uh, printed out pictures of the property they were going to buy with their paychecks to keep them like on task. <laughs> like that's how cynical they were. Damn. Throughout. They did this for the check. Yeah, oh. for that house in Malibu. I just want to go back to Adam's comment about trigger discipline. Sure. But that is a thought technology that wasn't really taught in the military until it didn't really catch on until post Vietnam. Really? Yeah. So so during So maybe that's good acting by Leota. Yeah, so during World War Two certainly <laughs> and, and throughout Vietnam that it it hadn't occurred to anybody like, don't keep your finger on the trigger of a loaded gun just in case you trip on a rock. <laughs> uh that only came in that only came in later. This whole business of like war movies where guys are are have their guns out in front of them but their fingers are pointed straight ahead. Yeah. That's only recently, and if you see a World War II movie or a Vietnam movie where they're doing that, it's actually an inaccuracy. Go on IMDb and complain about it. Yeah, please. So we have something. So Ben has something to look at. Yeah. Well, at the end of every episode, I create a custom rating system based on the film that we've seen, and uh, for Operation Dumbo Drop, I'm selecting a scale of one to five tranquilizer suppository tablets. <laughs> One of the reasons they're able to get Boted onto the aircraft is they promise to tranquilize him. And these pills are about the size of uh, of bank teller. <laughs> what are Pneumatic those tubes. Yeah, like uh, the thing you send through a bank teller tube. Like they're, they're fairly substantial and they're uh, suppository form. Yeah. And it's Ray Liotta that has to dose Boted here. And we, we don't even get the gratification of that scene when he puts his... When he puts the suppository up Botet's butt. It would have been worth getting the PG thirteen to see it go in the butt. Well, yeah. or to or to see Botet like like zoom in on Botet's eyes. <laughs> right. Like we didn't even get that. You're gonna put that where? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Um I did not like this movie. There are there are some fun parts to discuss with you guys, but Holy moly. This was rough for me. Um, I'm going to give it one broken suppository <laughs> tablet. The one that uh, that Coronimic breaks. Uh, that's supposed to be the second pill that they administer, but they aren't, they're unable to yeah. because it's all busted up. Um, glad I saw it for the purposes of our discussion, but uh, will not consider this movie at any point going forward <laughs> by you guys. I'm going to give it two and a half suppositories. I think that the the scene that the film takes its title from and the kid are just so great that... Yeah, the kid deserves a half a pill, doesn't he? He's amazing. And yeah. that scene is amazing. And like, I definitely don't think this is a, a great film, but it is an amazing artifact and... Uh, 
I'm so glad that we got to watch it for this because uh, I've been curious about it since I saw the uh, cardboard stand up in the in the movie theater for it when I was a kid. And uh, this also is a weird confluence of two things about my father that I've always been really curious about, which is my father went to Vietnam in the army. And also he was before he was drafted was a elephant uh, keeper at the Central Park Zoo. So Whoa. like. I want to watch this movie with my dad now <laughs> just to see like what stories it evokes. Oh, I want to watch this movie with your dad. Yeah. One of the most popular responses we've been getting to this show is that I never would have watched this movie if it weren't for this podcast. Yeah. And now I feel like we have become that because <laughs> I never would have watched this movie outside of this podcast. And, and you're right, Ben. I think I'm glad that I did for that reason. John, what about you? Well, yeah, I never would have watched this movie except for this podcast. And when we started a war movie, and we should actually have that as the tagline of the show <laughs> yeah. on, uh, in the metadata, like, I never would have watched this movie except for this podcast. Um, when we started doing this, or when we proposed this show to one another, I definitely thought that every film we watched was going to have John Wayne or... or uh, William Holden in it. Right. And we've watched a very diverse set of movies, but this really pushes the boundary even more than Rambo 2 <laughs> for me. I feel like it's a it's more of a war movie than Mongol was. I mean, there's certainly it takes place in the context of a war, but this is the only movie we well, wait a minute. Yeah. The only movie we've watched where no one dies. Yeah. Like, there's not even really the suggestion of any person dying. Um, well, doesn't uh, Lynn's, Lynn's family oh, dies at the beginning? Oh, right, right, okay. But that is, yeah, right, like cut but to it's, white. It's, yeah, it's cut to white. It's uh, You have to do 100% of that math in your head. Oh, wait a minute. No, 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 we're wrong. Because when, he, when he's having his emotional breakdown and flashes back to the death of his father... Yeah. There there actually is some slow motion people getting machine gunned. Yeah, no blood though. No never, blood. Never blood, never bullet holes. So there have been some movies like that where the the amount of dying is is pretty truncated. Um Yeah, boy, it's really tough. Like Corin Nemec's character in this movie, it's exactly Spike Jones's character in Three Kings. It's the same yeah. exact role. Right. Except Spike Jones does an incredible job. Corn Nimick just sort of, you know, like Corn Nimick and Dougie Fresh are both. You see why Dougie they're Doug. in the movie. <laughs> or I'm sorry, Dougie Doug. Dougie Fresh isn't in this movie. Dougie Doug. Um, you see why they're there. But this movie's got so many Rickleses. It's just like two Rickles too many. <laughs> um, I, I am so conflicted. This is an argument I used to have with Sean Nelson, my good friend who is who writes film reviews for The Stranger. Did he review and, this film? <laughs> I don't think so. I think during this was period, he busy in 1995 doing yeah, other stuff. Harvey Danger was uh, Harvey. This is pre Harvey Danger fame. Harvey Danger was still playing for 40 people in 1995, so he might have actually. That'll be something interesting to look up. But he and I used to go to movies together and, and get into these big arguments because he was kind of like you guys are looking at movies from the standpoint of their their filmic construction. 
and and he would redeem bad movies all the time by saying, well, but remember that big tracking shot? Then they did like a like a zoom into the character's face and it never lost focus. <laughs> and I'd just be like, what are you talking about? This movie was incomprehensible. Who cares about the tracking shot? He was always trying to redeem movies that were irredeemable mm. uh, based on some stuff that didn't make any sense to me. And this now, now I've spent enough time with you guys and with him that I'm like, oh, well, there's a lot about this movie that's redeemable. But as a movie, it just is like, it's, it's such a garage full of half-empty paint cans. <laughs> I, Whoa. I, I have to. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> I have to give it, uh, yeah, one and a half broken suppositories. <laughs> wow. Bro- I'm sorry, broken water buffalo suppositories. Yeah. Misused as an elephant suppository. Did you find a guy, though, John? Well, you always find a guy. You got to find a guy. And got to. I think my guy, it, sh- it should be evident that anytime James Hong appears in a movie. <laughs> He's going to be my guy, whether he's the star or whether he's just the guy running the Chinese restaurant. But he doesn't always get to be the, I mean, and especially everyone's trying to be the comedic relief in this movie, but he had the, he had the only like basically two humorous line readings. He actually like his, his, he delivered on the humorous line yeah, where everybody else was given these kind of like clunky lines and they either like Dennis Leary got away with just being Dennis Leary. And it's, it's maybe my favorite performance by him because he didn't get to just swear his way through. <laughs> and he actually was pretty charming. Gen- Dennis Leary with one creative restraint. Dennis Leary just covered with nicotine patches. Yeah. <laughs> <in his laughs> <uniform. laughs> <laughs> barely holding it together <laughs> but like none of his none of his like funny lines really delivered nobody got any funny lines but but uh but james hong got a couple of funny lines and he really nailed them and so as soon as i saw him i was like well they're good whatever like vietnamese verite this film had right out the window yeah but but i but i walked away from that you know, wanting more of him too. Um, my guy is the uh, French riverboat captain, yeah. Godard, played by I think his name is Checky Carrillo. I just uh, the the reveal that he had uh, LBJ on one side and and uh, Ho Chi Minh on the other side of the uh, of the portrait was uh, was really hilarious and like. I man, I am so curious about that guy, like the French guy that stayed in country amidst the war and just like steams up and down this river and like stays alive by giving good intel to both sides is fascinating. Like what happens to that guy later? It felt a little African queeny, like just a glimpse into that sort of lifestyle during wartime. Yeah. So it, uh it super was Africa queen, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I, I liked that guy, and I, uh, I'd be curious to see that guy's story as well. Should have been a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my guy is Botat the Elephant. <laughs> because uh, through most of the film, he was thinking, I don't know what I'm doing here, and none of this is making any sense, and there's just a lot of screaming in my direction. It's a female elephant. <laughs> yeah. So you were identifying with Botet. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Fun. Uh, why don't we see what's coming up on the next episode? Oh, sure. Why not? The premiere episode of Should John's Daughter Watch This? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, how many films are on our list? Okay. I've added a couple... Uh, we are up to 87 films on the list, John. Wow, we're really down. Weren't we up to 100 at one point? Well, we, we, we cleaved a few off to save them for live shows and special episodes. And didn't you take a couple off because we couldn't find them? Yeah, there were definitely a few in the list that like did not appear to exist. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, there, there was like an early phase of this list where we were just kind of trawling through any online list of war movies we could find to add things. And, uh, and there were also a couple of duplicates. So, uh, the list has been manicured somewhat. All right. Out of 87, and they have been completely randomized. They're pretty, pretty random at this point. I'm going to go number two. Number two is a film about the War on Terror from 1998, directed by, I believe, a Friendly Fire repeat, Edward Zwick. It's The Siege, starring Denzel Washington. The Siege. Yeah. I've heard good things about The Siege. The Siege is a movie that I have a very vivid memory of uh, of seeing. Like, it, it's, it's a movie that, like, came out a few years before 9-11 and uh, seemed incredible and preposterous and then like wound up seeming kind of predictive in my in my memory of it. I don't think I've seen it since 1998, but I feel like I, after 9-11 was like, wow, that movie was like kind of on point. Huh. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. We'll 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 see if my we'll see if my memory of my memory is right. <laughs> turns out turns out the war on terror is the longest and most involved war in American history. So yeah, I think it qualifies. Yeah, I think we could bring that thing to a close if only we just drop more elephants over there <laughs> as a peace offering. Yeah, that would do it. They hate us for our elephants. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that'll be next week on Friendly Fire. Uh, and in the meantime, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire's a maximum fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. And it's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, and it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Ditmore. 
If you want to continue the conversation on social media, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John's at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. You can join in the discussion over at Facebook. We've got a group there. We've got a subreddit. There's a whole bunch of places to connect. So please support the production of Friendly Fire by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate or by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. All right. Thanks. See you next week. Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.